0: Ms. Ray Lynn, I don't want to embarrass you, but do you mind coming up here for just a second? Is that going to embarrass you? <laughs> I, I know it doesn't, but it you. You don't mind the crowd. But I have to give you a hug because uh, I don't know if y'all can hear her, but I can hear her, and I got choked up trying to say the Lord's Prayer because Ray Lynn said it with such pride and said it so well. And I wanted to point that out because it's a shameless plug for children's Sunday school. And in children's Sunday school, not only do they learn the Bible story that they're studying, which is great in and of itself, but they also learn stuff like the Lord's Prayer, right, Ray Lynn? And what else? Like books of the Bible and uh, the Ten Commandments and things like that. And Ray Lynn is able to say it because they learned those things in Sunday school, and I'm so proud of you. Thank you for doing that. You, you did a great job. Thank you. What's that now? She sang, and she sang, and she she read the scripture. I heard it all, uh, and and it makes me proud that we do those sorts of things. And the reason, another reason I point that out is we uh, we say the Lord's prayer every Sunday. And you might wonder why do we recite that all the time? Well, it's for people like Ray Lynn and for people like you that you'll remember and have those things at memory uh, in memory. And we're going to recite in just a second the Apostles' Creed together, and that is another. Uh, thing that we recite as a way of committing it to memory. Um, If you remember, uh, we are in a study of the Apostles' Creed and we have come to a section on who Jesus is, the second section of the Apostles' Creed. And uh, so as we have done uh, the last uh, several times we've been in this study of the Apostles' Creed, we're going to start by reciting it together. It's in the middle of your Uh, Bulletin. If you want to take your bulletin and go there to to have it, or maybe you've already committed it to memory. In either case, uh, we'll read this together and recite uh, this as our confession of faith today. So let's do that now. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. On the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today thankful for the blessings that we've already enjoyed in song and prayer, in the reciting of the Lord's Prayer, in the reciting of this creed in uh, the study of your word. And Lord, I pray that as we come to this time of study, that you would be with us, that you would work through the preaching of the gospel, that we, your people, might go from this place and live in obedience to it. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as I just said, we're moving on in our study of the Apostles' Creed. to the section on Jesus, and we saw last week, to start with who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the promised Messiah who would be the prophet, priest, and king for his people. And so this morning we come to the second attribute given of God the Son, and that is the statement, His only Son. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son. So Jesus not only is the promised Messiah, but he is the promised Son of God. And to see that, let's consider Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7, and then towards the end of the sermon, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. And so we're going to start with Isaiah chapter 7 in this Christmas season. It's a beautiful prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And so I, I wanted to read it both as a connection to Jesus as the only son of God, but also to his incarnation as uh, the son in his birth in the uh, stable in Bethlehem. So Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10, it says, And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. "'Ask a sign of the Lord your God. "'Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven.' "'But Ahaz said, I will not ask, "'and I will not put the Lord to the test. "'And he said, Hear then, O house of David, "'is it too little for you to weary men "'that you weary my God also? "'Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. "'Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son,' And shall call his name Emmanuel. So this passage begins with a frustrating conversation between God and King Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was one of many wicked kings of the nation of Judah, and he led the nation into increasing levels of idolatry. Yet, even though he led his people away from God, the Lord was still faithful to his people and he promised that he would protect them at this very moment the the nation of assyria was bearing down on the nation of judah and the people were trembling because of this empire that was going to conquer their little nation and and there was no way seemingly that they could escape the conquest of assyria and yet god promised that he would do it, that he would deliver them from this conquest of Assyria. He even went so far as to tell King Ahaz, this pagan king, uh, in verse 11, he tells him, ask anything of me. Ask a sign that I may give you to prove that I will do what I have said that I will do. But in an act of false humility, Ahaz refused to accept a sign. Now, at face value, as I said, it's false humility. At face value, it looks as though Ahaz is being righteous. After all, we know from Scripture that God says not to put him to the test. But deep down inside, Ahaz doesn't want to ask a sign of God, not because he's pious and not because he's righteous, but because he would rather trust in pagan gods and in his fair-weather friends of Egypt and Cush than he would to trust in God. Because something will happen if he lets God do the work. Something will happen that Ahaz, this wicked king, doesn't want to happen. If God does the work, then who gets the credit? God does, Right? And Ahaz cannot bear the idea that God, the the deliverer of Israel, would get the credit for this once again, a deliverance of his people. And instead, he wants to trust in his will and his ability. And in verse 13, God expresses frustration over Ahaz's refusal to trust him with a son. And so God offers his own sign. And he says, I'm going to do a great work of deliverance for my people. And in verse 14, he gives this sign that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And he shall call his name. She shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there are actually two miraculous markers of this mirror, this sign that God gives to King Hay has. First, there's the marker of the fact that a virgin will conceive And bear a son. Now, there's two reasons that this statement is extraordinary. First of all, we all know that it is physically impossible for a virgin to conceive a son of her own doing. I'll I'll say more about that in a couple of weeks when we get to the clause on uh, the uh, born of the Virgin Mary. But this statement is far more significant than just a, a random virgin conceiving and bearing a son. This statement hearkens all the way back to the first prophecy ever given in the Bible. The first prophecy ever given in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And it comes in the midst of all these curses that God is pronouncing on the serpent and on the woman and on the man. In Genesis chapter 15, God has just cursed the serpent to crawl on the ground all the days of his life. And then he says this thing that seems to be not so much directed at the serpent, but at the force or the person behind the serpent. And he says that the uh, seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now catch this, in the midst of pronouncing all these curses, God promises that he will provide a way to defeat those same curses. There will be a son born of a woman who will defeat the rule of Satan over this world. God's people remembered this promise and in every generation there was hope that a son of a woman would be born who would break the curse of sin. This was the great hope of Cain that was ultimately dashed in his murder of Abel. This was the great hope of Seth in which it says that on, in his day men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This was the great hope of Noah and Enoch and, and Moses and on and on and on it goes. But in every case, men did not live up to the calling of this son of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And so now God gives Ahaz a sign. How do you know who this son of the woman will be? When you see the virgin conceive, that will be the son who will crush the head of the serpent. Second, we see a miracle in the statement, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this statement is miraculous because of what the name Emmanuel means means the name emmanuel means god with us so not only will this son be the uh, be conceived and born through a miraculous means of a virgin but he will also be the very presence of god with his people this is why we confess in this creed that jesus is the only son now when we confess this it's important to say what we don't mean and what we do mean. And so I want you to consider two things that we don't mean when we confess Jesus as the Son of God, and two things that we do mean. First of all, when we confess that Jesus is the only Son, we do not mean that God just simply looked down through the corridors of time and He saw little old Jesus being a faithful young man, and He said, I'm going to adopt Jesus as my Son. I like him a lot, he seems to have a good heart, so I'm going to adopt him as the son of God. Now, this is a very popular view, especially among liberal Christians, and it's a view known as adoptionism, obviously. Uh, And they deny, people who hold to this often deny the miraculous aspects of Scripture. They say there's no way that uh, a virgin can conceive and bear a son. There's no way that God can literally uh, be both fully God and fully man. And so it must be that God just adopted a good man, that he just chose Jesus and he made him his son. Now, it is certainly the case that the Bible refers to many sons of God. For example, in Job chapter 1, the angels are called the sons of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, God promises that he will be a father to Solomon and that he will call him his son. But with Jesus, it means far more than any of that. In John chapter 1, verse 14, as we read for our call to worship, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory and Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just as Isaiah promised, the eternal Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. As, as Isaiah said, He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And catch this. When John talks about this, he says, We have beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. What he's drawing our minds back to is the Israelites in the wilderness. Just as the Israelites in the wilderness saw the glory of God descend on the tabernacle, a tent of meeting where God would meet with His people, so too the disciples saw, Jesus in, uh, saw God in Jesus. They saw God with us in the very person of Jesus. They beheld the glory of God in His only Son, Jesus Christ. As the King James Version puts it, he is the only begotten. He is the only true son of the father. Jesus is not just a really good man who was adopted by God. He is very God of very God. Second, when we confess the, the only son, we don't mean that Jesus is just another creature even if he is the first and the greatest of creatures. Many Christian cults, like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness, believe that God the Son was the first of God's creation. Now this belief goes all the way back to the 4th century with a priest named Arius who taught that there was a time when he was not. There was a time when Jesus or, or God the Son did not exist. Yet this denies the very revelation of God. John chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? Was God, right? God the Son is the Word of God. And He has always existed with God because He is God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, it's very appropriate, uh, Joe, that this was the subject of our, our Sunday school lesson today. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Um, the Pharisees ask who Jesus is and Jesus responds in a way that immediately makes them pick up stones and start trying to kill him. They recognize in what Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 58 that he is blaspheming or they believe him to be blaspheming. You know what Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 58? Before Abraham was, I am. Now, as Joe taught in Sunday school this morning from Exodus chapter 3, we know that when Moses asked, Who shall I tell them has sent me? How does, Jesus, how does God respond to him? You shall tell them, I am that I am. I am has sent you. When Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is assuming the very name of God. And so the Jews recognize this and they immediately go to stone him because they recognize it as blasphemy for him to say the name of God as his own name. And not only that, but notice also in saying that, that he is claiming to be pre-existent. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He existed before Abraham, before Before Noah, before Enoch, before Seth, before Adam, before any of creation, there was the Son of God because before Abraham was, he was. He is the Son of God. He is not a creature. He is one with God in his very essence. So now that we understand what we don't mean, let's consider what we do mean. And to see that turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 it says, "He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, uh, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So from this passage, there are two key words that help us to understand Jesus as the only Son. First, there is the word image, or in the Greek, it's the word icon. So Paul uses this word to say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And I am so thankful that Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave us this idea of Jesus as the image of God, because in my mind, it is the most helpful way to understand who Jesus is. This word, image, has a deep biblical meaning, because the word effectively as I said, the Greek word is icon. And if you think about icon, it's a, an image or a, a, an idol, basically, of a theme. If, uh, and, and this image harkens back to the idea of idols that people would make to represent their God, right? When you make an idol, you, quite honestly, you don't believe uh, people that make idols. It's not that they believe that the idol itself is their God but rather that that idol is a means by which they communicate with their God. In fact, most idols that are made in the Middle East or were made in the Middle East were made with their mouths open. And the reason their mouths were open is so that their God might inhabit that idol through that mouth. And so they, they believed when you make an idol, it is a portal, basically. A, a means of communi- communing with your God. Now, God made an idol for Himself. The first time this word, image, is ever used in the Bible goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. And there He says... Let us make man in our own what? Image. After our likeness. You see, God made man and woman to bear his image. In fact, did you know that mankind is the only authorized image of God? Think about the second commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, right? Now we often think that because of that, uh, God because God forbids idols in the Ten Commandments, there is no physical representation of God in the world. But that's not right. God has always had a physical representation of Himself in His image bearers, mankind. But there's a problem: the image of God in us is distorted. Is distorted because of sin. So man no longer rightly bears the image of God because of our own selfishness, because of our own pride, because of our own sinfulness. We are turned in on ourselves, as John Calvin says. We are turned away from God and turned in on ourselves, and we cannot bear the image of God properly as He created us to. Right. And so for us to be forgiven... For man and God to be reconciled, somebody has got to bear the image of God rightly in this world. And so, God did it himself. He, through his Son, Jesus Christ, became God with us, and he bore the image of God in mankind for us so that we might be forgiven Of our sins, of our failure to bear back the image, uh, to bear the image of God before Him. Second, there's a key word that I want you to notice in the same verse, and that is that He is the firstborn of all creation. This word firstborn comes up several times in this same passage. Now, when we read this, we might say, well, you know, I guess the Jehovah's Witness were right, because it seems as though He says that. The son is the first created being. But that's not what firstborn means here. Paul does not use the word to describe the birth order of Jesus, but his position. You see, firstborn was a position in a Jewish family. The one who would receive the birthright, and if he were royalty, the one who would receive the throne. And you can know that Paul means it this way, because if you look down in Uh, Verse 18, he says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, pop quiz, is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? Is he the first man to ever come back from the dead? No, he's not. Jesus raised at least three people from the dead in his own ministry. And that's not even counting the people that rose up from the grave when he died on the cross. There's the story of them coming up out of the grave when he died on the cross. And so Jesus isn't the firstborn from the dead. So obviously, this word "firstborn" is not meant to des- to describe an order, but rather his position. And you get that very idea when it says that he is preeminent. That when Jesus takes on this position as firstborn, it is meant to communicate that he is the preeminent one. He is the one who rules over all things. He rules over creation because it says that for by him all things were created. He rules over creation because he holds all things together. And so he is preeminent. He is firstborn in that sense. He is firstborn of the church because he is the first to rise from the dead, to deliver us from sin, and so that those who are in the church, those who are believers in him, might have eternal life with them. He is the first, the preeminent, resurrected one. So as the only begotten Son of God, Jesus is the preeminent King over all things. He deserves this title because he is the eternal Son of God. He deserves the title because He is the one who created all things. He deserves it because He sustains all things. And He deserves it because He redeemed His church through His death and His resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, it is because of the only Son of God that we now are called sons and daughters of God too. As I mentioned earlier, it is uh, someone had to represent man to God in a way that uh, elevated and lived out the responsibility of mankind to bear the image of God. Adam failed to do it. Cain failed to do it. Seth even failed to do it. Moses failed to do it. David failed to do it. And yet Jesus Christ bore the image of God for us. So that when he died on the cross and he rose again from the dead and by faith in him, we now are made sons and daughters of God. That's right. And so, as uh, Paul says in Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 29, we are predestined to be made into the image of the son. So now we live to be like Jesus. Because Jesus is the only true Son of God, and we live to be made to be like Him. And so, as we leave this place, may we leave as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We don't leave uh, as enemies of God, but we leave as His friends. And we don't leave as slaves, rebellious and resisting the leadership and the rule of God, but we leave as children of God who call him father and we call Jesus our brother because he has redeemed us through his life and image of the one true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus as the only begotten son of God, the one who bore the image of God completely, the one who is preeminent over all creation. Lord, as we continue to worship, may you draw us to yourself. May you drive us from this place to serve and to be motivated to live for you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.